Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Hadley Gamble, reporter and anchor for CNBC's TV show, Capital Connection, based in Abu Dhabi. Reporting from the Gulf, Hadley covers the midday Asia markets and gets viewers ready for the Middle East and European trading day. It is one of the best news programs available covering business and economic trends in the region. Hadley and I will be discussing President Biden's upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, whether Turkey will give in on Sweden and Finland's NATO membership bids the fate of the Iran nuclear deal, the impact of the Ukraine war on the Middle East, and what trends in regional markets we may be missing, but shouldn't be. My conversation with Hadley Gamble of CNBC begins now. Hadley, welcome back to On the Middle East. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's always an honor and a privilege. Now, it's our honor and our privilege to have you talk to us today about all that's going on in the region. Let's start with President Biden's trip to the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia. It's now supposed to take place sometime in July. This is a sign of a major turnaround on U.S. policy toward the kingdom from when Biden took office last year. You interviewed the Saudi Foreign Minister, Prince Faisal bin Farhad Al Saud, at the World Economic Forum last month. You have covered the kingdom and continue to cover the kingdom as closely as any journalist I know working in the region. Paint the picture for us of how Riyadh is viewing this change in tack from Washington and what it hopes to achieve from a visit from President Biden. Well, Andrew, I think that in the shortest uh, terms possible, this is called eating crow. That is exactly what the Biden administration has finally realized that they in fact have to do when it comes to Saudi Arabia. This is a recognition one would hope of the place that Saudi Arabia holds as the leader of OPEC, uh, the so-called cartel, and the fact that this is a country that for so many decades outsourced their foreign policy to the United States until the last few years when to their mind, they were abandoned by the United States, by the administration of Washington, and by U.S. foreign policy goals. And I'm talking specifically about the rapprochement with Iran, the need for a JCPOA. The Saudis deeply feel that they have been abandoned by the United States from one administration to another from the start when then U.S. President Barack Obama decided to declare a pivot to Asia. I was sitting in the room when foreign ministers, aghast, looked at the only U.S. representative there in Bahrain. And you were, I think, in that room, too all those years ago that's right and they were you were there and they were aghast and they wondered what that really meant for them they didn't understand why they were being abandoned and to what extent that would mean and i think everything that we've seen in the decade subsequent to that you know this idea of forming their own foreign policy these frankly failed um journeys into yemen and elsewhere by the saudis by the uae is is the knock-on effect of the fact that they felt abandoned by the united states so taking a step back and thinking about what this means for the United States and for Saudi relations now, one wonders if the rapprochement with Saudi Arabia is really going to be to the extent that they and Riyadh think it's going to be. Perhaps there's a bit of wishful thinking on their part that um, the administration in Washington was saying they're going to visit, that it's going to reset everything and they're going to be sitting pretty again and that they're going to have a voice in a way that they have in years past. 
But at the same point, one hopes that those in Washington, that those sitting in the White House understand that you cannot negotiate energy policy without being able to pick up the hotline to Riyadh and to Moscow. And that is actually one thing that former President Donald Trump actually got. Let's get into the oil piece of this for a bit. The kingdom recently agreed to an increase in the OPEC plus quota. That was, that's been a longstanding ask by the United States. But I think if I understand what you've been saying recently, your view is there's less here than meets the eye. Absolutely. I mean, so essentially what you know at this point is that the IEA, the International Energy Agency, has said that something like 3 million barrels could be lost in the second half of this year as a result of U.S. and European sanctions on Russian oil, right? So this is all of the barrels that are going to come off the market as a result of nobody wants to be caught red-handed with Russian oil, first of all. And second of all, you're going to have to, anything that Russia sells is going to have to go at a discount. So that means that already there's going to be a lot of Russian oil off the market. Now, July and August, they had already scheduled something like 650,000 barrels per day, right? And they had priced that in, in terms of around 430,000 into their market, right? Being additional barrels to the market. So essentially what you've seen in this agreement is they brought forward the amount of barrels they were going to put forward in September, right? And they brought it forward by a couple of months to enter the market in the next month, which is 355,000 barrels over the next two months, right? So in the end, although it seems as if the UAE and Saudi Arabia, OPEC countries have put more barrels on the table, you have to put that in perspective with the barrels that are being taken off the table by Russia. So actually, it's not that much. And you're going to have another reaction that we saw a couple of months ago when the United States decided in their infinite wisdom that they were going to put uh, potentially more barrels by the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It was like a drop in the barrel. And the time they did it before, same situation. So even though it seems as if Saudi Arabia and the UAE suddenly starting to play ball with the US administration, oh yes, we're gonna bring prices down, da, 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 da. You've got to remember, you're already taking a heck of a lot of barrels off the table when it comes to Russian crude. And we're talking about an already very tight market because of years of underinvestment and the fact that they were really trying to play it safe with the demand picture. Because even though you've had Shanghai locked down for all those months and the worry about demand from China, we're gonna see increased demand from Asia. It's just going to continue to go up and up and up. United States, biggest economy in the world for now, still demanding a lot of crude. We're in demanding energy across the board. So you've got an environment where there just isn't enough energy to fulfill the need. So no matter what it looks like, the US can take credit for this, but it's not putting that much more on the table. Let's talk about Iran. This has been the bad week for those hopeful of a revival of the Iran nuclear deal. What's the buzz out there in the region about Iran, including if there is no deal? Now, on the one hand, there's a lot more regional uh, diplomacy. There's been an Iran-Saudi negotiations uh, in, in Baghdad. Uh, the UAE also now has its own channels to Iran. Is the expectation that Iranian uh, behavior will moderate with or without a deal? Or is everyone taking a deep breath and worried about what Iran might do next? So I asked this question of the Saudi foreign minister at Davos a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, are you worried about Iranian crude coming up to market? Are you worried about a JCPOA that doesn't necessarily reflect um, that second track, that dual track that, that you've so often spoken to me about the necessity for this? And he said, listen, at the end of the day, 
our hands are stretched out to Iran. We have ongoing conversations with our brothers in Iran. This is a different message even than what I heard last year at the G20 when we were in Rome, when I asked them the same question. Then they'd had one or two meetings. They were waiting for their third and not much had been accomplished. What he was essentially saying to me, Andrew, is that he and his GCC counterparts have a continuing dialogue with Iran. They're talking to them all the time. Whether or not they've come to any conclusions about whether there should be, you know, Houthi attacks in Abu Dhabi and on infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, that's another question, but they at least have that conversation ongoing. The problem, of course, is whether or not the Iranians feel like there's any reason to give any ground to the Biden administration at this point. Why would they? The Biden team is looking at the price at the pump, $5. National average is around $5 now. They're looking at places like California, it's as much as six to seven. The Iranians know that they need to put their oil out there. They know that they're sitting in the driver's seat. And then they knew that, frankly, the minute the Biden team came into office because they put that achievement, a new JCPOA or the revival of JCPOA at the forefront of their agenda. So, you know, at the moment, they're sitting pretty. And the fact that the Gulf Arab countries are having ongoing dialogue with them just reflects the fact that they know that the Biden team will, will look for a deal at any cost. They know that a dual track isn't actually happening unless they make it for themselves. Um, and so for Iran at this point, I mean, whether they bring cameras in, they shut off cameras, they don't feel that the West has any leverage with them because we've seen what happened during COVID-19. We've seen the impact of sanctions over the Trump years. I don't think this is a, a, an administration, can call them that, or a leadership that actually cares about the welfare of their citizens. So whether their citizens are doing well or dying of COVID, do they actually care? You mentioned the energy points here. I mean, is there then not an incentive on both sides, the West, given the energy crisis uh, that's a consequence of the Russia-Ukraine war, and in Iran, yes. in terms of getting investment and increasing exports, uh, a return, at least in, in, in part, to the international financial system, to, to do the deal? I mean, the, those incentives would seem to be higher. How can Iran keep itself out of the international energy market uh, to double, probably double exports of oil very quickly uh, if there was a deal? One would wonder, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a country that could be in a very different socioeconomic state than it is today. And the only reason that they are where they are is strictly down to politics. And one wonders why they wouldn't, as you say, take total advantage of the fact that the United States and the rest of the world is in hock to a system that Vladimir Putin has been able to take complete advantage of. Because if you were to allow more Iranian oil onto the market, one would think, one would assume with the laws of supply and demand that prices would inevitably go down. But the thing is, is you can't flip a switch, right? This wouldn't happen automatically. And I think that they are smart enough to know after all of their decades of negotiating with the West, that if they can get a better deal for their crude, if they can get a better deal um, for their economy, then they're going to do it. And I think that they're going to play the waiting game. In the background of the Biden visit, including to the kingdom, is uh, Israel normalization. Prince uh, Faisal laid out to you at Davos the Saudi position on normalization. How do you see those prospects with Saudi Arabia and the normalization trend overall in the region? You know, this is the thing. The, the, it's a question of age, in a sense, because the older generation in Saudi Arabia will tell you absolutely not, will not happen. 
and uh, the younger generation is a very different, you know, situation. And I think that there is a strong recognition that it's coming. It's only a matter of time. Um, one wonders if that might not be part of the conversations that are happening. Um, when, if they have said so far, the president visits Israel and potentially Saudi Arabia in the coming months following that Madrid NATO summit. Um, I think that when you talk to folks today, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, their sovereign wealth fund, and all of that oil and gas money, um, one of their arms is investing through various means in Israeli companies. So it's not, you know, a bridge too far to say that those relations are going to normalize at a certain point. Let's move to Turkey. NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg told you a couple of weeks ago he is confident that a solution can be found to Turkey's concerns about Sweden's and Finland's membership bids. Are you confident? And as you know, we at El Monitor have been covering this too. Um, what I'm seeing is that Turkish President Erdogan seems to be digging in, including with his threats of yet another military incursion into Syria. I think that he's going to play this to to the best advantage for Turkey as he does everything. I mean, we always talk about, you know, Turkey being at the center of East and West and the fact that they've literally got to play both sides against the middle. In many interviews that I've had with the Turkish foreign minister um, and other ministers within that government, they've essentially said to me that they're going to do the best for themselves. And we're seeing that playing out right now. As you mentioned, that interview that I had with um, Jen Stoltenberg, he said, I'm confident that we can get to a deal with the Turks. But the thing is, they're going to have to give to receive. That's always got to be the way, right? And one thing about that, first of all, um, why is it that NATO members have to literally bow and scrape to Turkey to get anything done? Two, why is the only NATO member who seems to be able to successfully, quote unquote, negotiate with the Russians? Why is that Turkey? Why is that not a European nation? Um, Turkey has more to gain than to lose. They are also you know, close to the Ukrainians, close to the Russians, but they've managed to put themselves into a position where NATO members have got to kowtow to them and they're gonna play that to their very best advantage. Um, there is a sense, I think, um, in the region at least, between Saudi Arabia and the UAE who deal with the Turks on a very regular basis, um, that if they can get the Turks to quote unquote, forgive the Khashoggi merger, which they have, then, you know, Erdogan can be pushed to the highest bidder. And I think you're seeing that playing out now. I mean, from what I've been told behind the scenes that if it's a question of weapons, if they get the go ahead from Washington on uh, fighter jets, then they're gonna be feeling pretty good and they'll continue to exert pressure on Russia. Not too many years ago, we saw that downed Russian fighter jet and the, the Turks seemingly ready to go to war with Russia and NATO didn't back them up. That of course was during the Obama administration. Um, and I think they learned from that. And so in every conversation subsequently with NATO, they've understood that you know, NATO wouldn't necessarily be there for them if they started a ruckus. So might as well use this to their best advantage. And that's what's happening now. Hadley, you were at the WEF and interviewed many world leaders there. Lots of good feeling and support for Ukraine. But how prepared are the global elites for the international energy and economic crisis that is only just starting as a result of the war? and especially what World Food Program head David Beasley is calling a house-on-fire global food catastrophe that is already hitting hard Egypt, Tunisia, Lebanon, as well as many other emerging market countries in the Middle East and throughout the world that are energy and food importers. 
It's incredible, Andrew, because, you know, at the World Economic Forum summer version that we had this year, um, this was the conversation that every single person was having that nobody was technically talking about on camera because nobody wanted to stand up there and be the people who were telling Ukraine that they need to cede ter territory to Vladimir Putin to make all of this go away. Nobody wanted to say that on camera, but everybody was saying it off camera in sessions um, to me in multiple conversations. And it's interesting that this is a conversation obviously that we were having in May, June, when back in January, February, um, this was a conversation that I was having with folks that if an invasion took place, what this could mean for global security, what this could mean for food prices. And the oil ministers had it first. You know, I was talking to the Saudis, to the UAE, um, even in March, and they just said, listen, you don't understand how bad this could really get. And think about it for the Middle East specifically, as you say, you know, how did the Arab Spring start? This was a food crisis. This was worries about bread. That's why you've seen significant investment from Saudi Arabia into Egypt, into Jordan. Um, we're talking about now Lebanon. I'm sitting in Beirut right now, and I spoke you know, early with U.S. officials, and they were saying you know, the worry that we have right now is that the global community isn't going to be able to support a country like Lebanon already in socioeconomic crisis because of the fact that we're going to have literal shortages of wheat. We're not going to be able to help them. Um, the problem, too, is you know, now we live in a woke environment where you can't say anything without, you know, the Twitter sphere descending on you. And I think that politicians are the least immune from that, right? Because technically, if you're publicly elected, you have to have the support of the public. Um, and so people are afraid to tell the truth. It's interesting that when I spoke with Vladimir Putin back in October, the Kremlin attacked me as being, you know, an agent of a, the U.S. government who was trying to seduce the president. Um, and distract him from the, the very serious things that were happening in Russia. And just a week or so ago, two weeks ago at Davos, when I asked the Ukrainian foreign minister, does the whole world have to pay for the fact that Ukraine has decided they're not going to cede territory to Vladimir Putin, i.e., we all know that eventually you're going to have to negotiate. I've been told off record by multiple sources in the Ukrainian government and elsewhere that they understand that they're going to have to give up, you know, any autonomy when it comes to Crimea and elsewhere, probably Donetsk. And yet me asking that question, you know, unleashed a tirade of public sentiment on me for having asked the question that everybody at Davos was already talking about, which is, this is a huge problem for global food security. This is a huge problem um, for the global economy. We're talking inflation, stagflation, recession. And I think that unfortunately, you know, as much as everybody wants to play the whole democracy and freedom game, nobody's looking at the actual picture when it comes to the economy. It raises a lot of questions. I mean, you have to sit back and wonder as a historian, when Vladimir Putin initially went into Georgia, when he went into Crimea, we should have stopped him then, we should have stopped him the next time, we should have, you know, coulda, woulda, woulda, and we didn't. So now we see the result of that. Finally, uh, Hadley, you cover every day Middle East and Asian markets from Abu Dhabi for CNBC. It's a great show, by the way. What are some of the exciting trends and good news stories you're seeing in the regional economies? I think that probably the startup story still is very, very interesting. You have um, still a lot of money in the global economy trying to find a return. So you have investors willing to put money behind um, startups and, um, you know, sort of third 
third tier investments that they wouldn't necessarily have put money behind in the past. You know, we've seen a couple of unicorns coming out of the Middle East when we talk about obviously Kareem a few years ago and Kotopi just a year or so ago. There's still um, a willingness to find that next big thing, which I think um, in the UAE and Israel specifically is pretty strong. Um, and in terms of the good news stories, we continue to see women doing much better um, maybe than the global average in the region, but just because of the fact that a place like the UAE has decided that there need to be quotas in place, half the government has to be women. They've instituted that kind of um, thinking in the private sector as well when it comes to the boards of companies. Um, and in a sense, they're actually much more forward thinking than even some Western economies, um, but still so much further to go. And I think that at least in the region, we recognize that and we have that conversation. But when we talk about you know, a lack of public funding, when we talk about a global economy in contraction, higher oil prices, yes, they're good in the short term, but the Saudis, the UAE, the Gulf countries understand that this isn't gonna last forever. And they are quickly reinvesting in oil and gas because they know that transition, transition fuels are gonna be very important in the next 10 to 20 years, but they're also trying to invest desperately in their private sector economies because they understand that the transition is going to happen much more quickly than even they anticipated. And the Gulf economies, which have been focusing on uh, the transition to renewables, keep that focus in, uh, in the time of very high oil prices. They say that they're going to. And that's what um, His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz has said to me repeatedly. The finance minister of Saudi Arabia has said that to me as well. You know, in the UAE, they have an entire sort of entourage focused on that specifically. The head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, Dr. Sultan al-Jabbar, is in fact the, the climate czar for the UAE. So they say they're doing all of that. And I've, I, they put their money where their mouth is. I always found it very funny because, you know, 10 plus years ago when I first came to the Gulf, they made me go to a climate summit. And it was, you know, a thousand different companies with them from Europe, mostly with all of their solar panels and all of their fascinating you know, hydrogen um, uh, investments and patents. And I realized that the majority of those patents, even though they were developed obviously in European countries, were owned by the region, by owned by regional players um, and sovereign wealth funds. And I thought, how fascinating. They're, they own the energy of now, oil and gas, and they're going to own the energy of tomorrow. So I don't think that that's put on hold at all. I think that's potentially even accelerated because they've got so much disposable income as a result of these higher oil prices. Emily, we're out of time. It has been a treat, as always, to talk with you <laughs> about you. the Middle East. Thank you for joining us today on On the Middle East. I love you so much, Andrew. Thank you for having me. We will return after this break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. 
As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Al Monitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest, Hadley Gamble, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland, Warren Little, and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will return next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our All Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, Gilles this month speaks with renowned Israeli-French artist and playwright Amos Gatai. And On Israel with Ben Caspit, Ben's guest this week is Haggit Ofran of Peace Now. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com. Thank you.